morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. This is a reading from Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king at war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word. So we're in the second week of looking at the hard, difficult sayings of Jesus in Luke's gospel, and this is a disturbing set of verses. I mean, when I hear it, 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 it disturbs me, right? It's hard to hear. You cannot be my disciple. If it was disturbing to you, you're not alone. Uh, Campbell Morgan was a legend at Westminster Chapel in London, England in the last century. He was the prince of expositors. And he said in his adult lifetime, this is a preacher of the gospel, there was never a time when he either read or heard this saying and feared it and well up in his heart. Am I really a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, we shared last week that the narrow gate that we all walked through was a gate of grace, not of works lest any man should boast. So why would fear well up in our hearts? The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And we have that wonderful assurance in Romans 8 that we are inseparably linked to the God who loved us, died for us, and saved us. Paul pens these words that we can take heart every single day. He said, for I am persuaded, he was absolutely convinced, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing shall ever, ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What I committed to him, he will keep to the final day, the, pre the perseverance of the saints. I believe in it. So how do we match up these words of Jesus? Unless you hate mother, father, and renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. Well, last week I shared there's three rules that we need to look at whenever we come to difficult texts. For those who weren't here or somebody's listening by audio, I want to go through them real quickly. Number one, always look at a difficult text in its context. Read the chapter, read two chapters. Get the flavor. What was the audience thinking? Uh, the people that were communicated in that day. The audience here, if you read Luke, is a great multitude. Jesus has not left for Jerusalem yet. 
There's been many miracles. He's a great teacher. There are throngs of people following Jesus. And in his own words, he said, you know, not everyone here has faith. He said, you're not all here because you believe. Some of you are here because you ate and were filled. Remember in John chapter 6, where they wanted to make him king? When he fed the 5,000, they thought, oh my gosh, this is the Messiah. This is the bread king. This is the one who will overthrow Rome and restore Israel to her prominence. And then Jesus said these remarkable words, another difficult text. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have no place in me. You cannot be my disciple. Also in the crowd were religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. And uh, Jesus kind of was teaching them in this parable of the Great Supper where he talked about a king who invited all these people to a gathering, speaking of the Jews. And one by one they made excuses. And then he said, go into the highways, the byways. Tell the Gentiles to come in. So he's got this big audience here, and uh, he's saying very difficult things. That's the context. The second thing you need to do is ask yourself, what does the preponderance of Scripture teach us about what we're looking at? What is God's character? What is God's mind in the rest of the Bible concerning this? To love God, does it really mean I hate the very people that I love on this earth the most? Quite the contrary. In Genesis chapter 2, God looks down at Adam, he's alone, and God said, that's not good. And God, in his benevolence, crafts this woman. She was custom made, and he gives her to Adam. And Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and there'll be one flesh. It's a beautiful thing God did there. Uh, The marriage institution, wonderful And what God was really saying there is, before we start any form of government, economic system, or even a form of worship, the foundational institution for life to flourish on earth will be the family. In God's mind, the love that exists between family members, all family members, extended family, would be the building block for a flourishing community. God said, be fruitful, have dominion over the earth. In other words, make something of the earth. Take your gifts and talents. Make something of the earth. Flourish in the earth. Make it a wonderful place. Is it any wonder why Satan has his attack on the family? Is it any wonder why he pulls dads out of families and divorces rampant and all the abuse we see in families? He knows that's the building block. He knows that's the foundation and that the love between family members is that strong. When Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them the law. Now, we think of the Ten Commandments, right? And there were five commandments to honor God, five commandments on how to live with each other. Jesus said that was the whole law. If you can do just those two things, love God and love each other, you'll fulfill the law. And God was giving them a a framework to live civilly among one another. But he was also making them unique by giving them a culture, right? Every corporation has a culture. Every school has a culture. And he gave the Jews a culture that they would not only worship God, but export that culture to the rest of the world, right? They were to be a light to the Gentiles. And in that culture, there were laws to live by the Ten Commandments. But the laws extended to almost everything a Jewish person would do, right down to the way they would eat, right? They would be kosher. They wouldn't eat pork, no shellfish, no lobster. Praise the Lord, the law's over with. No king crab, dungeness crab. Uh, They would be unique. Go to a ball game and they can't eat a hot dog, right? Those people are weird. What's going on? God made their economic system different. 
first 10% you're going to give to me. What was it like when your relatives heard that, right? Hey, Dad, I joined this new church. It's amazing and all. And now we give 10% of our income to the church. That's an interesting conversation among relatives, right? And then every seven years, let the land lie fell, and every 50 years is a year of jubilee. God gave them a unique covenant called circumcision. And then he gave them a lazy day. God said, take one day in seven. Just rest. Don't do anything. No work. That was profound in that day. In the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, 12, God said, honor your father and your mother so that you will live long in the earth and the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 6, 2, where he tells children to obey their parents. And he recalls the commandment, honor your father and mother. And he said it's the first commandment with promise. All the other commandments just tell us what we should do or not do. This one has a promise. It will go well with you. Wow, that must be really important. Now, a promise isn't a guarantee. It's generally the way things should go. The Talmud, which is not the Bible, it's not Scripture, it's just the oral writings of men who looked at Scripture and gave their ideas. But I found this one interesting. The Talmud said that God put in the commandments the honoring of father and mother because in the act of someone being born, uh, there was almost a trinity involved. Isn't that cool? In the Talmud, Jews writing about a trinity. There was the mother and father, right? We know about chromosomes and sperm and all how that works. And then God, right? Jeremiah, when you were in your mother's womb, I knitted you. So there were three agents of creation, the Talmud says, and therefore if you honor mother and father, you're actually honoring God. When our children were small, they would get cabin fever right about February. And for 20 years, we would go to Lancaster to a place called Willow Valley. Had a great water area they could swim in, a smorgasbord. And they had a bus tour where the guy who took you on the bus tour to look at Amish country was a Mennonite man with a long gray beard, and he was fantastic. He would drive you through the Amish world, and he'd say, no, you know, the Amish, you know, people come down on them. He said, he said, listen, they don't have cars, not because cars are evil, but they think if you have cars, then family members will move away. They don't have telephones, because if nobody moves away, you don't have to be on the telephone, you just go talk to your kids, they're right around the corner, And not only that, if you're on the telephone, uh, you won't be with your family. And they don't have tractors because they'd rather sit on a more rudimentary device and have quality time with their kids. Anyone want to be Amish this morning? Yeah, I think I do. And he said, never forget, it's given them the results they're looking for. But then he said this. He said, you're going to see a lot on this tour. There's one thing you're never going to see. There are no nursing homes in the Amish community. Because they believe in 24-hour care to those who gave 24-hour care. That always stuck with me. And that came right out of the Bible. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, in Proverbs 1.8, said, My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament around your neck. And I already read you Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with promise. What does it mean to honor someone? Does it mean to do everything they say? Well, up to a point. It means to revere or respect their position. So what that means is, my children are obey me. I don't need to give them any examples or reasons, right? I said it, you do it. I don't really need to spell anything out. But there comes a time, and I don't know if it's 18 or 21 in our culture, where my kids become my peers, 
They have intellect. They can make wise decisions. Some of them are smarter than I am. And uh, therefore, I have to respect the way they're going. But I'm always dad, and I always get that respect. And so does my dad. Sometimes parents will give advice contrary to Scripture or conscience. Life decisions, right? So if the preponderance of the Bible says that all these people should be honored, why does Jesus tell us to hate them? When you look at something in its context, you read it like you read any other book, in its literal, grammatical, historical setting. We've already talked about the setting. But the grammar here is interesting, and I'm not a linguist. But in the Hebrew, at least, idiomatically, there were words that were used as a contrast. Let me give you an example. Uh, Jacob and Rachel is the greatest love story in the Bible. Genesis 29, if you want to read it later. Um, no man has ever been more smitten by a woman than Rachel. I mean, he was just gone on her. And in that culture, you had to go to the dad, and the dad held all the cards. And he goes to Laban, and Laban says, yeah, you can have Rachel, but you're going to work seven years, okay? What guy would do that, all right? And whatever guy would do it, the girl would feel like so special. And the Bible said that he worked for her for seven years and it seemed but a few days. Who said puppy love was only a couple months? I mean, this is unbelievable. But then Laban schnookers him, right? Seven years goes by, he works, he says, give me my wife, and he slips in Leah, right? You got to get them all married in, the, in that culture. And, and, and he knows he's wrong now, he has two wives. And in Genesis 29, 31, God looks down, King James Version, and, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now, did Jacob really hate Leah? I don't think so, because she bore Judah, which was the line of Christ. I think Jacob's love for Rachel was so strong and so evident to everyone around that his treatment of Leah looked like hate in comparison. Jesus used this idiomatically one time when he was talking about prayer. He said, you guys out there are good dads. Your son asked you for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. If he asks for fish, you're not going to give him a scorpion. You're great dads. You'll give your kids anything they want. How much more if your evil or your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What Jesus was saying is, you're a good dad. You know how much you love your kids. Your love is hate in comparison to the love of God. Making sense a little bit? All right, let, let me speak your language. So football season's around the corner. And we root for the Eagles, right? Which means we hate the Cowboys, right? And if you moved in from another area, we hate the Cowboys. Now, do we really hate the Cowboys or is our love for the Eagles so strong in comparison that it looks like hate for the Cowboys? No, we hate the Cowboys. <laughs> what Jesus was saying when he said you have to hate your father, mother, spouse, and children to follow him is that relationship would have to supersede all of the relationships. Now, you box checkers out there, I'm worried about you. Because there's a bunch of you out there, when you hear supersede, you run to your flip chart. God comes first, spouse is second, family third, church, and then friends. Who in the world could ever live that way? 
And if somebody lived that way, I wouldn't want to be their friend. Like, I don't want my friend having me fourth on the checkbox. So if I'm like hemorrhaging and I pick up the phone, he's like, no, I can't come because God's for, yeah, it's ridiculous. And God doesn't want it either because he's, he doesn't want to be on a checklist. See? So what's going on here? Is Jesus on a power trip? Is it, you know, is he afraid that we're, is he like the other capricious gods of the past who through fear wants us, wants our relationship to him to be first? Power is what God gave Adam and Eve and everyone that was ever created. Culture means to take the physical ingredients around us and make something of them. It's where we get the word horticulture. So if you go to Longwood Gardens, what they're doing is they're taking dirt and seeds and they're making a beautiful thing. Music, there's seven notes, but you rearrange them and you get Mozart and you, you know where I'm going. That, that's culture, to make something of the world. So God has given us power. Moms and dads have tremendous power over young children. Sometimes that power is abused and we know the results. Governments have the power to create or destroy. Men have power over women. They're stronger than women. And for much of this world's history, um, that has led to women not being empowered the way they should have been. Jesus had more power than anyone who ever walked this earth. He was God. He said he could call 10,000 angels anytime he wanted. He could walk on water. He could disappear. Fire down from heaven. He could do anything. But the Bible says he divested himself. He emptied himself. A better word of that power. And became like you and me. Became one of us. Was born in a manger. Was a carpenter for 30 years. Died on a cross. His devotion to us was so strong. A great high priest where he abolished the commandments that were contrary to us. His devotion to us was so strong, he was so all in, he wants us to be all in. Let's stay with the football analogy. Chip Kelly's been getting a lot of abuse. He's the Eagles coach. And he's getting a lot of abuse because people think he's a racist, they think this, they think that. Chip Kelly's built a culture. Through sports science and the way he runs his offense and all, he's saying to his guys, look, this is my culture. If you buy in, I promise you it'll work. But you got to be all in. I was at a marriage on Friday, and every time you hear vows exchanged, basically they're said a thousand different ways. You know what they're saying? I'm all in. That's what marriage is. I'm all in. Marriage isn't the 50-50 where, I, you know, I do half and you do half. Marriage is the 100%, 100% that we're inseparable. We're all in in this deal, wherever it would take us, till death do us part. Jesus never said the Christian life would be easy. He never gave us a bait and switch. He said, if they revile me, they'll revile you. The key to this whole teaching is verse 26. Look in your Bible. Unless you hate mother, father, spouse, and children, and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Well, I could be my... Man, I'm... I can be a disciple. I hate life. I hate my life. I hate everybody's life. I hate everything. <laughs> you know, remember the people would say, you know, we were growing up as teenagers, I hate myself because I'm so fat. You look in the mirror. You know, if you hated yourself, you'd be glad you were fat, right? The Bible said no one's ever hated themselves. The problem is we love ourselves. The problem with the human race is selfishness. To hate your own life, what does that mean? Again, to embrace the new path God has for you. 
the old way you were going would look like hate in comparison. The greatest fallacy in all the world is that we're in control. It's unbelievable. And we feel like we're in control. We feel empowered. We feel like we're going to do this and do that. And look at any teenager, any young adult. Their greatest thing is the unknown. The whole world's before them. You know, if you're our age, you look at it and think, oh my gosh, the whole world's before you. And, and they don't know who they're going to marry. They don't know what they're going to do. It's a very difficult time. And what God's saying is, I have a wonderful life for you. I'm going to craft a life that was made for you the way you were wired. You're going to fit right into it. Uh, I was listening to a prominent pastor recently. He's pastor for 40 years. He's one of the largest churches in America. He was talking about how God tapped him on the shoulder when he was young and said, I want you to pastor a church. And how this one guy mentored him and took him under his wing and the rest is history. And he said, I look back and wonder, what if I would have never heeded that call? He said, today I'd be a half-hearted Christian leading a corporation, probably make millions of dollars, and I would have missed all that God had for me. Christianity is the only religion where we're asked to die up front that we might live. Die to our dreams, die to our ambitions. Why? That God might override them and give us the grander vision. I told my kids this, now I'm telling a lot of young adults this. A lot of them come to me and say, we struggle with things. But how come you don't seem to struggle? You seem like you have this childlike faith and you never doubt and all that. I say, guys, listen, here's how it works. I'm a convert. You guys grew up in this thing. I'm a convert. Now, I have BC days. I know what it's like to have the hole in the heart and be empty and think I've got this way planned. And the day God came into my heart, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer. And let me tell you this. You don't think I know things weren't about to change? How could the God of the universe come into your heart and life not change? Dying to yourself is not stopping what you love to do, unless it's contrary to Scripture. Someone wrote a book called, I Died to Myself, and I Almost Died. You know, if you love the outdoors, God doesn't want you to stop hiking and skiing and swimming and all that. He wants to give you greater affections, greater paths. Again, that grander vision. He wants you to be emotionally healthy and emotion, you know, spiritually healthy and whole. The greatest example of this is James and John. They were disciples, right? A disciple's a learner. It's not even a religious word. It's a, an apprentice. And the, the Bible says they were the sons of thunder. So thunder was dad. You all get that? Sons of thunder? Dad's name was thunder. Probably had big biceps, lightning bolt, you know, on his biceps. And uh, dad thought the way to the good life was built a, a business, and he built a fishing business, and his sons would be fishermen, and their sons, and they lived a good life. And he invests all this money into his fishing business, and he's got his sons working. And one day, this rabbi comes by and says, drop your nets and follow me. What do you think that conversation was like that night? You think the other neighbors could hear thunder rolling? What? You're going to follow who? After all I've done for you, and this is the path for you? Now I'm making that up, but I'm sure it had to go that way. Jesus said, you're going to fish for men. You were created to fish, but you're going to fish for men. What if they listened to dad? He was dad. You have to honor dad, right? There'd be no John, first, second, third John, no revelation, no statues in Rome. I mean, think about what would have changed. 
Jesus said, your love for me must supersede all their loves because I have your best interest at hand. And it lines up with what we read last week. Entering the narrow gate, there's going to be people pounding on that door in the end. Lord, we did this in your name. We did that in your name. We prayed. We, we, we evangelized. We did all those things. I never knew you. All God ever wants to do is to come in relationship with you. Does he want you to not have a spouse? No, he created Eve. He created marriage. Does he want us not to enjoy our children? No, the Bible says the children are the heritage of the Lord. But he wants our love for him to be look like hate in comparison. John Ortberg nailed this in this month's Leadership Journal. He had an article on prayer and ministry. And he said he could never understand that situation where Jesus was on a mountain with some of the disciples and they come down and they say, Lord, we've been trying to cast this demon out of this guy, but we can't do it. And then Jesus tells the demon to flee and he does and the disciples are scratching their head like, why can you do it and we can't do it? And Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, was Jesus praying and fasting? I don't think so. He, He was up on the mountain with his disciples. Does that mean they weren't praying and fasting? I don't think so. But John Ortberg said you get a kind of a clue at this when he raises Lazarus where he says, Lord, I thank you that you hear me and I know that you always hear me. And then John writes, he said that for the benefit of those who are around. What was Jesus doing? He was showing us that prayer isn't something that's done only in a closet, but a prayerful person always has the presence of God in mind. In other words, the goal of prayer is to not get good at prayer and to see who can spend the longest time in prayer. Jesus said to pray like the pagans who believe they will be heard for their many words. The goal is not to pray with greater feelings of certainty or greater eloquence or even greater frequency. The goal of prayer is to live all my life and do all ministry in the joyful awareness that God is present right here, right now. This is the prayer-filled life that can sustain and empower a life of ministry. If God is always there, what does that mean? We're in a relationship with him. Like the footprints on the sand, whether I can see him or not, or whether he's distant or not, he's always there. That's what Paul meant about praying without ceasing. Now to drive this home, in verse 28, Jesus gives three examples. A man building a tower. Verse 31, a king going to war. And then verse 34, he talks about Saul. And then he says, likewise, if you don't do these things, you can't be my disciple. Now, traditionally, we've read that because of the word likewise, and we've been puzzled, and we thought, oh my gosh, i got to count the cost, right? I'm like the guy building the tower, and I'm like the man going to war. i got to go home and figure out, do I still want to follow Jesus? And... I don't believe that he, what, that's what he was saying. Campbell Morgan doesn't believe it. Warren Wearsby doesn't say it. Some of the greatest scholars don't believe it. They believe that the word likewise, and when we heard the reading today, um, it was the word therefore. If it is the word therefore, it changes everything. Okay? Because if it's the word therefore, what Jesus is saying is that he's the king and he's the builder. And I believe that's what he was saying. I believe what Jesus was saying is that the cost was so high that souls were at stake for all of eternity, that the gates of hell were pounding, and that he was going to build his church, that the laborers were few, but the harvest was great. I think what Jesus was saying is that the stakes of building the kingdom were so high 
than to go into this endeavor with half-hearted believers would doom the church for all of eternity. He was the faithful king. He was the builder that counted the cost. It's the only way I can look at it. I look at our world today for one reason or another. Here in Delaware County, God said, this is your field. And we've got to take this field and we've got to make something of it. We're the pillar in the ground of truth. We're all in this together. And we can't do it half-heartedly. We can only do it with people that are all in. You know, when I, when I read these verses, I got stuck a little bit. And I start remembering all the conferences that I was at where Pastor Chuck Smith was teaching. And Chuck would repeat things over and over again, and now I know why, so that we would remember them. And his favorite verse was from Zechariah. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And you know, even though you know that verse, you think, okay, power's good, right? Volume's good, money's good, like resources are great. You start to trust in those things. And then you get stuck in your tracks, and you're like, oh yeah, God, I, I, I get it. And then I thought, of, Chuck always talked about Gideon. So I went back and read Gideon. And here's Gideon, you know, he's got this great task ahead of him, and he starts out with X amount of men, and God's whittling the men down. He's like, God, you're going in the wrong direction. We're supposed to be going north with men, not south. And by the end, Gideon realizes he can do more more with 300 men who lap than 33,000 of a mixed multitude. Jesus looked at the church of Laodicea and says, you're neither hot, you're cold, you're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. I never knew you. The church gets docile whenever it gets organized. And I don't mean organization. Organization's good. We've been talking about the NFL. The NFL is organized. It has referees, a commissioner, owners. There's rules on the field. And it has the greatest demographic of 18 to 35 than anything out there. Organization's great. When the church gets compressed prioritized. Whenever the church is led by a hierarchy where people feel comfortable, it moves on somewhere else. God starts something else. Because his eyes go to and fro and he's not looking for the person who's going to pull out a Bible devotion with their kids. He's looking for people that are all in. Who are disciples. When I was in Chicago, I ran into Richard Stearns. I don't know Richard Stearns. I've talked to him twice in my life. But I always stop him and thank him for all that he's done. He leads World Vision. And the reason I thank him is he's from Delaware County. He he was the CEO of Lenox China and uh, later the Franklin Mint right down the street here. He had an old farmhouse in Delaware County. His kids went to Delaware County Christian School. And uh, he was called to lead World Vision. And he writes about this in his book, The Hole in Our Gospel, where he went through the dark night of the soul. He said, you know, one day I'm the CEO in a boardroom And two weeks later, I'm in Uganda in in jungles. And, you know, the story is amazing because he's not telling a wonderful story. He's telling how much of a chicken he was from God to get him from point A to point B. And it's something everybody can resonate with. And he writes this book called The Hole in Our Gospel. And he said the idea behind The Hole in Our Gospel is quite simple. It's basically the belief that being a Christian or follower of Christ requires much more than having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. If your personal faith in Christ has no positive outward expression, then your faith in mine has a hole in it. As Johnny Cash sang, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The Apostle James felt strongly about this type of person. 
Show me your faith without deeds, he challenged, and I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, make your faith public. Maybe you're disturbed this morning because you're not a disciple. And that's okay. Because like I shared last week, the door's wide open. The gate's narrow, but it's open. Maybe you need to go home and process. See, Jesus has to be the builder. He has to be the king. You know why? Because everywhere I look in the Bible and in my own life, you know, when I heard about Jesus, I was like the man who went and bought the whole field. I was like the guy shouting from the rooftops, and then I learned everything. I didn't learn everything. You know, what happens to people that never heard and all that? I didn't figure that all out and say, okay, God, I just spent a lifetime figuring it out, now I'll accept you. That's not counting the calls. That's almost like hedging your bets or overthinking. You read difficult texts in their context. You look at the preponderance of Scripture. And then the last thing you do is seek God. God, I don't understand this. And you knock. You seek. And he opens. And you find. And I think for those of you who are Christians, God will give you great assurance. And I think for those of you, you're trembling in your boots. But there's a great God who loves you. He's knocking on the door of your heart and he wants you to come in. He wants you to be a learner, an apprentice. Why? Because he has prepared the greatest life on earth for all of us. Not a perfect life, not a life devoid of challenges, but a life that gets grander the longer we walk and heaven becomes a reality. A reality, and we can be like Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain. I will put my pillow on my head today knowing I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and so can you. Father, we thank you for